This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at pgasuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Nick O'Hearn. Let me give you some more background on Nick. He is from Perth, Western Australia. Uh, Growing up, Nick played baseball, tennis, and golf. Turned pro in 1994. He qualified for the European Tour on his first attempt, though, by the way, going through Q School in 1998. Played on the European Tour from 1999 to 2007, where he finished runner-up seven times from 2003 to 2007. In 2004, he cracked the top 50 in the World Golf Rankings, finishing 45th. The next year in 05, he shot all the way up to 24th and was a member of the international team at the President's Cup, where he helped earn them two points when he and countryman Peter Leonard defeated Davis Love and Kenny Perry in the Friday matches, and on Saturday paired with Tim Clark defeated Fred Funk and David Toms. 2006, he reached 21st in the world rankings, and he won the Australian PGA Championship when he holed out from a greenside bunker to birdie the fourth playoff hole to defeat his uh, international teammate, Peter Leonard. That season was also his best finish in a major, tying for sixth at the U.S. Open, and he won the Australia-Asian Order of Merit. Nick is the only player to defeat Tiger Woods in the World Golf Match Play Championships twice He did that in 2005 and 2007. He's written a book titled Tour Mentality, Inside the Mind of a Tour Player, which you can find online at Amazon.com. And I'm thrilled that he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. There we go. We had a little trouble with your mic. Hey, Nick, are you with us? (laughs) Yeah, I'm there. Sorry, must have been on mute. Uh, Yeah, no, thanks for having me. We appreciate your time. So, uh, Nick, let's start by going all the way back to the beginning for you. And I read that your father was a very good golfer. Is he the one that got you started playing the game? He did, yeah. Early on, uh, I just basically did what he, uh, whatever sport he played. And, you know, it was baseball, tennis, and eventually he turned to golf. So at about eight or nine years old is when I started. Uh, I ended up playing all those sports, even a little bit of soccer there through to about my mid-teens and uh, I just found the attraction of golf something that was you know, very compelling to me with the team sports such as uh, baseball and soccer, for instance. I could have a good game and, and still lose, whereas uh, golf, I thought, well, it's all up to me. And tennis was a little bit like that as well. So I just loved those sports. Yeah, so I was curious, you know, when you look at, you know, the, the baseball, the tennis, and then the golf, you know, what was it about at what point did you realize of of the three you know what hey i'm i'm pretty good at this golf thing this may be the way for me to go <laughs> yeah i guess it was probably when i was 15 or 16 i i just golf was more fascinating to me than tennis at that point and i'd probably given up baseball by then um but mine i guess was an unusual story the lowest handicap i ever got down to was a two uh, when i was 16 years old and when i turned pro I was actually off a four handicap at the age of 19, um, which is not, you know, world beating these days, that's for sure. So I, I did a, uh, an apprenticeship down in Australia to become a club professional, um, work in a shop, repair clubs, do some teaching. And then it really wasn't until, uh, I guess I finished that when I was 22. And when I, when I was about 23, 24 years old, I was struggling playing pro-am circuits in Australia, trying to play the game, but I was really just working in a shop and wasn't going very far. And, uh, you know, my wife and I, we got married pretty young and we basically give ourselves a, a three year plan, um, to, 
to see if I could do any good in this game. And, and the first things that I needed to do was find a good uh, a swing coach and then a mental coach and also get my fitness levels up and things like that. And I think since I gave myself a time period of that three years, it really crystallized everything for me. And uh, I set some goals that I wanted to achieve within those three years. And as it turned out, I probably achieved them in the first year and then I was off and running. And Nick, I want to jump ahead a little bit to your time going through Q school for the European tour. And for most people, mm. it takes several attempts to make it through Q school. You know, if you're fortunate enough to get through it at all, you got through it on your first attempt, which is a huge accomplishment. How were you able to be so successful first time around? Well, I had quite a bit of experience playing, you know, in Australia by that point. Uh, the year before, I'd actually head to the U.S. and played a lot of mini tour events. Uh, back then it was a Nike tour and I'd go and try and Monday qualify. And if I made it great, if I didn't, well, then I'd go play one of the local sectional tour events. Um, so I gained a huge amount of experience from that. And I actually went to the US uh, Q school second stage and, and missed. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I wasn't ready to play in the US at that point. So instead, through my Australian ranking, I went to the uh, European Q school and and the funny thing was, I think in the because it's a six-round event, the fourth round they have a cutoff, and I needed birdie to uh, to make that cutoff. Otherwise, I would have missed uh, I would have missed the cue school there. So, and I ended up eagling the hole, holding a bunker shot, uh, which snuck me through. And then from then on, that just kicked me on the to have a great uh, final two rounds and set me on my way in Europe. And absolutely loved it over there. Nick, in two thousand five. You ended up uh, playing on the, uh, in the President's Cup, which was held up at Robert Trent Jones Golf Club up in Gainesville, Virginia. Jack Nicholas was the U.S. captain. Gary Player was the captain of the international team. And in those Thursday matches, you and Tim Clark were paired against Phil Mickelson and Chris DeMarco. And, you know, before it all gets started, I'm just curious, what was it like for you? Standing up on the first tee, because not only, you know, you got the huge galleries around and all of that, you got some former U.S. presidents right there, not to mention Nicholas and Player there watching you. What's it like getting up on the first tee trying to pull the trigger when you got all of that around you? Yeah, it's quite the experience. Uh, I remember, you know, I've only really ever lost control of my bodily functions about three times while playing golf. And, uh, you know, one of them was through food poisoning. Um, the next time was playing the Open Championship at St. Andrews, the home of golf, which kind of speaks for itself. And then the last time was was that particular uh, tee shot, first, first tee shot of the President's Cup. I mean, it's like nothing else you've ever experienced. And, and the funny thing was Tim Clark and I, on the driving range, we were going through the, the course thinking, well, okay, who wants to hit this tee shot? Who wants to hit that because of the alternate format? And we came to the conclusion that I'd take the odds and he'd take the evens. And as I'm walking to the first tee, it kind of dawned on me that hang on, I've got to I've got to take that first tee shot, which was, which uh, you know, which wasn't all that out of the ordinary. I walk onto the tee, there's thousands of people there. As you mentioned, there's a couple of presidents in uh, Bill Clinton and uh, George Bush Senior, Gary Player, my captain, and then Jack Nicklaus, who was a, an idol of mine growing up. And I just sort of stood there thinking, what the heck am I doing here? This is uh, <laughs> this is not good. So my legs started shaking, but um, fortunately. You know, that's when you got to rely on all your routines and the processes of, uh, of all the practice you've done. And, and, and I was able to just sort of get my mind right in the present, picture a shot and let it go. And, and we were away. And we had a great match against DeMarco and Nicholson. Uh, unfortunately, it came down to the last hole and we lost one down. But I'll just never, ever forget that moment. The next year in, in 2006, you go back to your, your home country of Australia and, 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 you, and you win a major. Right, you, you, and and it's not just that you that you won the major, which is outstanding, but it's in the way in which 
you won the major. You had a three-footer <laughs> to win it on 18 that didn't go down. But you turn around and you hold a bunker shot for birdie to win it on the fourth playoff hole. So, you know, you, we'll talk a little bit about the, the mental game, right? You mentioned, you know, being able to collect yourself, you know, at the, at the President's Cup. But here you go. You have the disappointment on 18. You collect yourself. You get back and you win it in a, in a playoff. How did you how did you get your mind right? How did you you know kind of get back and and move on and say all right I'm going to put that in the past now I got to focus on winning this in, in the playoff. Yeah, it was probably the that that day was probably you know had had the worst moment in my career and also the best moment in my career the the, the missed three footer on the 72nd hole to to win the tournament was just something that you want to go dig a hole and bury yourself in and. It was a horrible experience at the time. And, and admittedly, I got ahead of myself. I was thinking about the victory speech rather than trying to hold the putt. Um, but I had a great caddy on my bag, uh, Wilbur, at that point. And in the, in the scorer's hut afterwards, he just, we had a good conversation. He just said, mate, what's done is done. Let's, uh, let's regroup and dig in and, and see if we can get it done. And, you know, four playoff holes later, we were, Peter Lonard and I were sort of exchanging looks at birdie, but we couldn't make it. And uh, three pars. And then on the fourth playoff hole, we we're in the back bunker and, I don't know. It's one of those moments where I got water behind the flag. It's a little downhill bunker shot, and everything sort of again crystallised for me. I just saw the shot I wanted, hit it, it went in, and my gosh, I tell you, the relief that came over me was something else. And we had one heck of a party that night. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. So you win the Order of Merit that year for the Australia Asia Tour. What's it like reaching the pinnacle of your sport on the tour in your home country? Uh, it's something really cool. I mean, I'd, I'd always dreamt of uh, winning my home home uh, home country or home tour with order of merit, and I'd come so close. I'd been second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, num- numerous times. And as it turned out, that whole bunker shot, I had to win that tournament to win the order of merit. So I kind of knew what was at stake. And and when they presented me with both trophies on that on that 72nd green afterwards, it was something really cool because um, you know not many. Not many people can uh, put their names on that order of merit trophies. Obviously, like winning the money list over here in the U.S. or on the European tour. So uh, that'll forever go down in my memory banks. And Nick, like I mentioned in your intro, you beat Tiger Woods twice in the World Golf Match Play events in 2005 and again in 07. I saw an interview that you did talking about the key to beating Tiger Woods. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, sure. Um well, first and foremost, you just got to finish one stroke better than him. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I, I, I guess my my caddy and I had a plan beforehand. We, you know, I'd, I'd never played it with Tiger at that point, and um, we basically knew that he'd only ever won uh, his majors, all the majors that he's won. I guess fourteen of them or so, when he's uh, either led or been tied for the lead going into the final round. So he's never won coming from behind. So our theory was to get ahead of him early and then just stay in front. If I get behind, I'm kind of toast. So, I mean, easier said than done, obviously. And that first uh, that first morning I played with him, there was, you know, a lot of people there and he hits his tee shot off on the first at Macosta in San Diego. And the thing just came out like a cannon and I was just aghast at, at how how impressive that tee shot was. So one thing I did make sure of was never to watch him hit another tee shot all day because I didn't want to become consumed by how good he hit it. I kind of looked away. But um, on that first putting green, I ended up having about an eight-foot putt for par. And my caddy's behind me while we're reading the putt, and he, he sort of whispers in my ear, mate, this is for the match right here. So <laughs> it was a big statement to make by him, but it helped me focus and really put everything into that putt, and, and I knocked it in dead center. 
ended up birding the next two holes to go two up after three. And, uh, and I guess the rest is history that day. I played really well, really well and ended up winning three and one. And, and then we had the same sort of, um, same strategy the second time in 2007 when I came up against him. I actually beat Rory, Ma- uh, sorry, not Rory McElroy, Rory Sabatini in the round before. And I knew Rory was jumping at the bit to get to him. So I was pretty pleased to get past Rory there and, uh, and, and play Tiger again. And, as it turned out, he, he got off to a bad start. You know, he, he wasn't playing very well and I was just winning holes with pars. Um, I think I was four up through seven just by playing level par golf, which was great. And then he hit a shot on like the eight or the ninth hole where uh, he had that famous, you know, little club twirl after he hit it. And I thought, oh, no, here he comes. He swings back on. So uh, he ended up making a bunch of birdies and we were square after 16 holes. And I was just, it was like trying to hold back the tide. And then I birdied 17 to go one up. And then he birdied 18 to send it into extra holes. He had a chance on 19, but missed the putt. And then I got it done on the 20th. So, you know, I beat him twice, which is fantastic. And as it turned out, he never led over those two, uh, two, two matches. So that's something pretty cool that maybe one day I can tell the grandkids about. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm sure you, you had an opportunity to play with him. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm guessing you had an opportunity to play with him subsequently in, in, in other tournaments. Did that ever come into play? Did he ever say anything to you about, you know, the fact that uh, you were able to take him down twice? <laughs> no, that never came up. Um, no, I, I only ever played with him in actual stroke play event in China uh, at the HSBC tournament. Uh, we were in the last group, as it turned out, on the Sunday and with David Howe, but uh, he's all, he was always very uh, cordial, you know, would have a chat every now and then. But uh, as far as the match play goes, no, I don't think he ever wanted to talk about that. So, and I was never going to bring it up anyway, just in, just in case we played a third time and he, he might do a Stephen Ames on me and go nine and eight or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Nick, when, when the tour banned the long putter, which you used to use, you not only switch putters, and for those who don't know, Nick is a lefty, you switched to putting right-handed. So you were playing left-handed, but putting right-handed. Why? Yeah, well, it came about, I guess, at a time when I was retiring, more or or less. I uh, retired a few years ago from playing, but the anchoring ban, I never liked the unanchoring. I, I just couldn't hold the putter there and sort of putt. So I, I tried the shorter version, and it never really suited me either. And as it turned out, I went right-handed by chance um, because I'm actually a right-handed person when it comes to throwing a ball or playing tennis or, or writing, for instance. But everything I do two hands is left, like hitting a baseball and stuff like that or playing golf. Um, I went out for a game here at Arworth, my home club here, and thought, well, I'd love to see what I could shoot right, right-handed. And um, went out for nine holes, played. Played okay, wasn't too bad, but the thing that really stuck out was I putted fantastic, and I really had no, I really had no thoughts about anything while I was putting. So I thought, oh, there might be something in this, and uh, I sort of tinkered with it for a couple of months, and and really enjoyed it. I couldn't quite get the distance control down for the longer putts, so Ping made me up a double-sided putter, much like um, you know the older Kushnet putters that you used to see. And with the longer putts, I'd hit left hand, and the shorter putts, anything within 15 feet, I'd hit right hand. And eventually, my speed got a lot better right-handed and uh, now I'm just a fully right-handed putting machine and I wish I'd have done it years ago because I love it. Nick, I want to talk about your book and again, it's titled Tour Mentality, Inside the Mind of a Tour Pro. Again, you can find it on Amazon.com and and I read that it came about just by playing with some of your friends on your home course there at Isleworth. You started teaching them how to think 
around the golf course versus giving them swing thoughts or playing lessons. Is that really where the idea of the book uh, sort of gen- was the, that was the genesis of the book? It was, yeah. I mean, I it, it never started out as a book. I uh, was playing with a couple of mates here. Who would always have John Hart, who's a good mate of mine, he's the well, former president now of the Atlanta Braves, and Steve Spade, another f- fellow member here. And, and Steve was really struggling with his game, and I just see all these swing thoughts going through his head. And I said, let's just simplify things. Let's just pick our target, go through a good routine, and hit it. And I think when he got rid of all the me- you know all the swing thoughts going on in his head, he just started playing really well. And he said, you know, you should write a book on all this stuff, the mental side. I said, yeah, well, there were plenty of good mental game books out there already. And he said, yeah, but they're written by sports psychologists. They're not written by someone that's actually played the game for a living. So the more I thought about it, it kind of made sense. And in the beginning, I sort of started writing just a few notes down and I was going to you know, do five pages or something and give it to all my mates here and say, hey, work on these things. And after five pages, I sort of started adding stories, had 10 pages, 20 pages, and it just kind of went from there. And I gave it to a friend uh, who's in the uh, literary industry and he, he loved it and said, look, if you can double the amount of uh, words you got here, we've, I think we've got a book on our hands. And, and that's kind of how it went. And, um, yeah, so far I've had, had some great reviews on it. And it, it just kind of simplifies things for, for the everyday golfer as well as the pro. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting some great reviews from high handicappers to actual touring professionals. So um, right across the board, I think it's, uh, it's, really, it's really kind of uh, gelled with everyone. And Nick, I, I also read an article from last November where Jordan Zunick from Australia played, you know, played out on the Australian tour, finished second last year at the Australian PGA Championship. And he actually credited your book with helping him with his mental approach. That had to feel great to have somebody, you know, that uh, was out there playing. But, you know, your book helped take him to the next level. <laughs> Yeah, that's always pretty cool. Jordan's a heck of a player. So much talent. And uh, I'm still working with him a bit now, just trying to help him along. But uh, his girlfriend, who caddied for him, actually reached out to me a few months before the, uh, as it turned out, the PGA. He said, uh, you know, can we can we get in touch? And I just wanted to, you know, she, she just wanted to thank me for writing the book. Jordan loved it. She loved it. And the week of the PGA, the Tuesday, I said, well, let's go out for a practice round. And uh, so we went out and had a, I walked around with him. And he just, put on an absolute clinic from Tita Green, but his, his sort of his self-talk and the way he spoke about his own game was, was pretty awful, to be honest. So I just kind of helped him out with a few things just to ease up on himself a bit and then showed him a couple of shots that might work that week. And then, as it turns out, he's leading the tournament after three rounds. Uh, so he, he had a great week. He ended up being beaten in a playoff by Cameron Smith, who's, who's a heck of a young player. So that's hopefully will kickstart his career and... Um, I've started doing a bit more of that, just sort of mentoring younger players, just trying to get them on track as to, as to how to uh, how to get the most out of their game, basically, and maximise their talent because there are so many talented kids out here now, which is which is unbelievable. But I guess what I do find with it sometimes is they're a little one-dimensional. They don't have a lot of variety to their games, and I think I can add that those extra layers that can really help them take it to the next level. Yeah, so expand on that. Talk about what you're doing now, all the things you're doing mentoring young players. Yeah, so with, with the book, uh, you know, I've emailed some uh, college coaches and things like that saying, let's, um, you know, are, you in, are they interested in the book, first of all, for their roster? Because uh, I think the book can really help a lot of college players out there. And then I've also done a couple of one-day workshops where I travel to the uh, to the college and, uh, and basically work with the team for a day. And then from that, uh, I've also been contacted by a few younger players or, or 
pros and amateurs alike who uh, who just want help with their game. So, you know, I sort of take on a mentoring role and show them uh, a lot of things that I learned over my career, you know, based around how to practice properly. That's a huge part of it, I think. Um, you know, how to develop a mental routine. And then a lot of things of uh, course strategy and really how to score out on the golf course because most of these guys and, and girls for that matter, they swing it great, but, you know, um, but they just don't know how to, I think, post the lowest number out on the golf course. And that's what I was always really good at during my career. My, my swing wasn't, you know, the prettiest out there, but I maximized everything I had and I was able to, you know, sort of get the most out of my game. And I'm just trying to transfer that onto these players now. So, Nick, you know, will we see you out? You talk about being retired or semi-retired. Will we see you out on the Champions Tour in a few years? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I still keep my hand in the tournament golf down in Australia. I go down and play the Australian Open and PGA. Uh, I actually went down to Perth last week to play that World Super 6 because it was in my hometown and there's some things revolved around my book there. I just got back, so jet lag's a bit of an issue at the moment, but... Uh, in a few years, I'll be I'll be 50, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to give that qualifying school a go. I mean, hopefully, I can get through that one on the first attempt as well, because I hear that's a tough one. But uh, by then, my kids uh, will almost be finished school, and I think it would be great to get back out there and play a little. So, Nick, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's online or over social media. Yeah, well, I'm on the usual social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, that sort of thing. But uh, I have my own website, just nickohern.com, which uh, has a lot of information there about some of the days I'm doing, some corporate outings for companies, uh, individual mentoring, uh, some blogs, some writing for the Australian Golf Digest magazine. So it's all, it's all basically on there. But I'm around, and if anyone wants to contact me, my email address is on there uh, about you know maybe working with them or, or doing some other stuff. So uh, no problem at all. Love to, love to help golfers, and that's kind of what I've loved doing right now. Well, Nick, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to be a part of the show. It's been fantastic talking to you. I hope you'll come back. So many other questions and insights I'd love to get from you. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime because it's been a lot of fun having you here. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, anytime, let me know. Sounds good. All right, Nick. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Take care, Nick. That is Nick O'Hearn. And again, his site is nickohearn.com and, and uh, it's uh, O-H-E-R-N. So nickohearn.com and, uh, you know, great stuff. Book again is called Tour Mentality Inside the Mind of a Tour Pro. Again, you can find that on amazon.com. Got my next guest, Ted Purdy, hanging on the line. Going to get to Ted on the other side of this quick uh, station break. <laughs> 